Well, everybody has one. But, or maybe I should say, however, women's bottoms <laughs> are judged in ways that lean towards sexism and racism. Too big, too small, too scrutinised. This part of a woman's body can tell us a lot about race and control and about how women feel about themselves, says Heather Radke. She's an essayist, journalist and contributing editor and reporter at Radio Lab on public radio in the US. And long before Kim Kardashian, women have sought to alter the shape and size of their backsides with bustles and diets and exercise and even plastic surgery. Well, Radke's first book puts the issues of beauty standards, cultural appropriation and self-worth front and centre. <laughs> and the book is called Butts, A Backstory. Heather Radke, hello. Hello, thanks so much for having me. I feel like this book was worth writing for the title alone. Did you just <laughs> did you just sit down one day and say, ah, I'm going to write a book about butts? Well, maybe not quite like that, but the title definitely never changed through the whole process. <laughs> it's about it's butts. Sort of... Yeah, it, it's about butts and it's not. It's a backstory, but it's not the backstory. And it, I should say it's part memoir as well. That's right. Actually, it's nice you noticed that the the difference between a backstory and the backstory mm-hmm. was a big conversation with the editor because it was really important to me that I I make clear that um, this was just one story about butts you could tell, but there were of course many others from many different perspectives. Um, a few years ago, you did a piece for the Paris Review about something called butt con. Now that's like Comic Con, but for bottoms. Uh, I, I guess my first question is who goes to something like that? And, and second, was that the moment that inspired you to think more deeply about our obsession with bottoms? Actually, by the time I was going to ButtCon, I was pretty deep <laughs> into the deep, project. Yeah. <laughs> but um, as, that was an interesting, uh, I don't know, it's like an interesting experience. It was, you know, one thing I often talk, say is that I really wrote a book about the cheeks, not the whole. But mm-hmm. ButtCon was a little bit more... <laughs> whole centric than oh I usually gosh. am. Yeah. But it was a pretty interesting group of people and there was like a lot of kind of uh different experiences happening there. There was like um you know some a porn star was talking, there was like a vegetarian taco booth, there was giant um like blow up butts everywhere and then it was put on by this uh this brand called Tushy which is a bidet company. But it definitely likes, you know, the, just the number, the sheer number of people that came out for that thing kind of speaks to, I think, our obsession about butts and also just like how much people love to just say the word butt and like go to a thing about butts, because I think it's sort of, you know, it's a little bit taboo, but it's not as taboo as other parts of our body. And so it kind of occupies a a, a, a strange, funny place that's like literally funny. It's also something we, we all laugh a lot about, I think. Yeah, in fact, um, this is playing out during the um, New Zealand after-school run. So I'm just picturing uh, tens of thousands of back seats full of kids giggling at the idea that we'd spend 20 minutes talking about bums. But you say, (laughs) as well as being funny, that uh, that butts are a bellwether. Of what? Yeah, I think, you know... Butts, like so many things that we are sort of a little bit nervous to talk about, they can they can really shed light on the other things that we are not wanting to talk about. So one of the things I discovered 
I mean, the thing I discovered over and over again as I was doing my research was, you know, how much the the symbolism of women's butts is tied up with the history of racism and the history of sexism and how that is a, a history that we sort of consistently try not to see in this way. So um, a kind of key figure in the book is a woman named Sarah Bartman, who was brought up from South Africa in the early 19th century to London by two men to be displayed in Piccadilly as a freak show and her display and then her later death and autopsy were really key moments in the um, creation of a stereotype of black women with big butts as hypersexual and this you know the people who called themselves racial scientists in the 19th century used her body in the autopsy report that was written by a scientist named George Cuvier as supposed evidence for the subhumanity of black people. And so even though butts are funny and uh, I think it's important that we keep them funny, I don't ever want them to be so serious mm -hmm. that we can't giggle a little bit. But I, I do think that the, the, the truth is that butts, the women's butts in particular, but really butts in general are just really tied up with the histories of race, sex, gender, or sexuality. Do other animals have butts? <laughs> That's a good question. Not in the same way we do. I, I, I always, you know, the 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 straight answer is no, they don't. Although everybody wants to be like, but what about chimpanzees or <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever dogs or I mean, like other animals have legs that you know come together <laughs> at a point. So I guess in that sense they do. But no other animals have the same set of muscles that we do at the top of our legs. So. The gluteus maximus and then the other couple of muscles up there are a uniquely human feature and they were a part of an adaptation a set of adaptations for running which is a really key part of human evolution and it helped us to be able to hunt in a really kind of extreme way on the savannah and that helped us to we were able to hunt like big meat that was high in calories and that helped us to um have the big brains we have, which help you know, allows us to do things like make radio shows and write books. Huh. So all this focus on opposable thumbs, we should have been looking at opposable bums. That's what makes us I human. Think, nice. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's. I mean, Dr. Daniel Lieberman, who whose research I'm citing here. Um, yeah, I mean, thumbs are part of it, but it's mostly you know his his claim is that it's these set of adaptations for running that really allowed us to become bipedal and then you know, to later use tools and et cetera, et cetera, to really develop in the way we did. Who decided that it would become more than just what it is? Who would decide that a bottom was, as you write, an indicator of a woman's very nature, her morality, her femininity, and even her humanity? I mean, yeah, I think that who decided is, you know, it's a, a it, and I think it's interesting to think about like the specific people, you know, there's, in the 19th century in particular, but it certainly goes back further than that, the the shape of a woman's body in any number of ways um, become equated with these, these ideas of morality. And it's not just butts, but butts are part of it where, you know, the, the way that a nose looks or a head is shaped or a butt is shaped is actually becomes an indicator of if a woman or in some cases a man is, you know, smart or not smart, sexual or not sexual, you know, pure or, uh, you know, too sexy for for what is, you know, considered prudent at the time. And of course, none of that is true. But it, these are kind of stereotypes that were created by scientists like George Cuvier and many, many others throughout the 19th and early 20th century. And then they they really do still live with us today.
I don't know if this is because I'm a man or or, or whether people are with me on this one, but I've never heard this word, a bustle, before. Um, a bustle, which you call a prop of whiteness and blackness. What is it exactly? Well, um, a bustle, in a, you know, the most simple answer for what a bustle is, is it's just, it's an undergarment that people, women in the late 19th century wore. So it's basically a big fake butt that they wore under big fancy dresses. Oh, uh, yeah. So you kind of see it in like, uh, you know, period movies from that yeah, time. Yeah, got it, got it. I've just Googled it. It's, um, I know it now that I see it. Yeah, I didn't know it was called that. Yeah, you've probably seen it before. And, you know, they they wore these big flouncy dresses over it. And, you know, at the time even, but certainly since people compare the look to like a, a sofa or a couch. I don't know what you say in New Zealand. Move it, like yeah, a woman both, both starts to look good. like a piece of furniture. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... One thing a bustle is, is a really weird looking style that was really quite popular at the end of the 19th century. And I, one of the first questions I asked when I was working on this book was like, why did that, why yeah. do people wear this crazy style? And, you know, there's a lot of different answers and it's something fashion historians have looked at, not maybe as much as I, I was surprised at how few people had taken on that question, but, you know, there are some theories out there, but one of them theories that I was interested in and I kind of traced through history was this idea that the bustle, if you look at it and then you look at a picture of Sarah Bartman, you see that there's a real visual echo between the two and that there's a way that part of what the, what women seem to be doing at the end of the 19th century was sort of strapping on a big fake butt that looked like Sarah Bartman's butt. And she was a massively popular figure in was the 19th she? century. In yeah. Europe. People knew yeah, who she was. People would have known who she was. And right at the time that the bustle became popular, um, her image and her remains were on display at the Paris World's Fair that was happening right around the same time. So we'll never know for sure that that's the you know inspiration for the bustle. It just can't really work like that. But I do think it's quite clear that there that that would have been something that people were aware of in their both their conscious and their unconscious mind. Yeah, and the timing lines up. Um, but but you know, with with some kind of uh, critical reading of what's going on here, this is a way of adopting the parts of blackness that that suit you, and then removing them when when you feel exactly, like exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that that gesture of the putting on and then the taking off is one that you kind of see th over and over again. And certainly we have seen it in the last 20 or 30 years as cultural appropriation has taken on a lot of different forms, but specifically with the butt. And yeah, and I think it's an important thing that that it's the privilege comes in both the way that a woman could, a white woman could play in blackness as, you know, as Toni Morrison famously says, play in the dark. And then, you know, take it off at the end of the day and and go back to being, you know, the the quote unquote pure white woman. So I think that, that that was something I got very interested in, both in the 19th century and then later in the 20th and 21st centuries, too. There's a story of money in this bustle trend, too, right? Well, I mean, if what you're talking about is part of part, another theory for why the bustle became popular is that at the same time, um, sewing, home sewing machines were becoming... yeah more available and so for seamstresses professor professional seamstresses they were sort of being put out of work by um, women having sewing machines in their homes and so they made 
by having this thing come into fashion that was pretty difficult to make and then having all these flourishes on the dresses, which the dresses often had fringe and kind of all kinds of fancy little things that would have been hard for the at-home seamstress to do. So it made it so that the professional seamstress kind of um, stayed relevant. And also there's quite a lot of fabric in a dress that goes over a bustle. And so again, there's a kind of display of wealth that comes with the the more, the more fancy your bustled dress is, the more, you know, you're showing off how much money you have. I'm talking to Heather Radke about bums, something I haven't said on uh, the radio before. Her book is called <laughs> Butts, A Backstory. And we're talking a little about, about the, um, <laughs> there are trends in bottoms, just as there are trends in other areas of fashion. By the 20s, women wanted to be thin, right? Thin and shapeless like boys. Yeah, that's right. So the, this was another thing I was really interested in as I in the earliest days of writing the book, because, of course, there's these there's a few eras where big butts come into style. So, you know, the bustle like we were talking about and more recently, but for most of the 20th century, buttlessness is the style. Mm-hmm. And I was curious kind of what does the buttless body mean? Just like what does the big butted body mean? So in the you know, in the late teens and early 20s, the, you know, I think it's a story many people know, the flapper becomes this kind of sensation and, you know, Coco Chanel and Paul Perret, they start to make a new kind of look, which is a, some people call it the rectangle woman. So it's kind of a curveless woman. And there's an idea that that's like a woman who has like cast off her corsets and her bustles, you know, and she's free in some way. But um, the fashion historian Valerie Steele talks about that era as a corset, the corset, instead of being on the outside of the body, it comes inside the body. And all of a sudden, for the first time, women are, mm. well, maybe not for the first time, but in a new way, women yeah. are, you know, tracking their weight, their, you know, the bathroom scale is invented, the fad diet become is invented and is popularized in magazines, which are becoming much more commonly read by most people. And this new way of self-control as a way of regulating the body it, that's that's how women start to relate to their body. So instead of using these undergarments to cinch their waist in, they're actually having to figure out ways to make their waist smaller on their own. Um, and then that that kind of buttlessness and curvelessness becomes the major body type. I mean, some fashion historians say it still is, even in this era of the, you know, the yeah. big butt being trendy. It's still a big butt on a quite thin body. Yeah, there's this obsession in the 30s and 40s with working out what normal is, (laughs) something that had never really occurred to people before, but suddenly there was a bit of a hunger for it, right? Yeah, so this that the 30s and 40s, and it really goes both back further and stays a lot longer. There's this, there's in the US, American eugenics has become very, very popular by that point. And um, when the stories I look at in the book are of these two statues that are called Norma and Norman, and they are meant to show, you know, the everyday American person what a quote unquote normal body looks like according to eugenicists. So these are, you know, white, able-bodied, uh, heterosexual, uh, you know, pr- bodies that will procreate and like m- keep the race going. And so the statues are actually displayed in 1945, which is, I think, a lot later than most people think of eugenics went because that's, a, you know, it's at the end of World War II. So, but actually these ideas about eugenics um, are much older than we sometimes think, and they last a lot, a lot longer. But the the statues, at least the Norma statue, was was based on a set of data that was gathered during the Great Depression, where these the um, this woman from the federal government sent 
around measuring squads all across America and measured thousands and thousands of women, but she actually threw out all the data from the women of color. And she was doing this to create women's clothing sizes, but the statue makers who, who were kind of, a, they, you know, they were eugenicists, but they were also, one of them was a gynecologist, the other was a sculptor, and they were very excited about this data set, which was, you know, exactly what they were looking for in their project to show America what normal was. And that had implications, still has implications. Um, women's clothing sizes are based on the so-called normal fit. Yeah, exactly. Although it never worked. It didn't work then and it has never worked since. Uh, I mean, it's it's also, you know, even though, I mean, partially because she threw out all that data, but also it's just almost impossible to make a standardized set of clothing sizes for for women because bodies are just so incredibly diverse. And so whenever you're trying to create something standard for the human body, there's always going to be a problem. And, you you know, you see that most of all with women's pants, um, which are just basically like everybody I've talked to as I wrote this book and have publicized it. It's like nobody has pants that fit them except yeah. for this one woman who does, who's the, who's the fit, the fit model, model for yeah. all the pants. Yeah. Huh. yeah. And, but people don't blame the clothes. Um, they blame no, their we bodies. all blame ourselves. Yeah, yeah exactly. You go uh-huh. in the dressing room and you feel feel bad, but it's really not. You know, it's it's easy for me to say. I even sometimes forget this when I go in the dressing room, even after I've done all this research. But you go into the dressing room and you feel like, oh, there's something wrong with my body. But the truth is, it's just a hundred percent. There's something wrong with the clothes because they cannot make them to fit the wide variety of humans hmm. that there are. I hope this is a breakthrough moment for some people listening today. Um, <laughs> So many uh, cultural roads and cultural intersections land on Kim Kardashian. Um, so let's get your views on her, I guess, her legacy or her um, uh, her world. She claims her backside is natural, and it has practically made her career in many ways. Uh, is there a yeah. view on that story as uh, monetizing black culture? I mean, for sure, and it's certainly not only me who thinks so. I mean, there's... I th- I think Kim Kardashian was very savvy in what she was in the moment that she was in and what she did with uh, the body she had, but then also, you know, whatever changes she made to it. I think in the late aughts and early teens, she was, um, you know, she was one of the first people to really use Instagram and she kind of understood that the algorithm would one of the things that she kind of understood about the algorithm that I don't think many other people did was that the butt was basically the dirtiest thing you could put on Instagram. And so that was one of the ways that she was able to kind of like, you know, it was, it was like a snaking in its tail. It just kept, you know, she kept making the butt more popular and the algorithm kept, you know, putting it more and more out there. But there were so many things that she was doing at that time that was, you know, especially now we see it as just blatant cultural appropriation and a lot of it was about her butt, but it was also all these other things that she was doing. You know, she was wearing cornrows and she was, you know, dabbling in, in black culture and all these other different ways. And it it very much seems to me and to a lot of other people that part of the popularity that she was gaining was she was a, a non-black woman kind of, again, taking on and taking off black culture as it suited her. That's so interesting, isn't it? How many, outside the scope of this book, but how many um, moments in, in, I guess, Western cultural history, white cultural history have occurred when 
uh, a white person does something that black does successfully does something that black people have been doing for years. I mean, Elvis and Eminem and arguably mm-hmm. the Rolling Stones and even the Beatles. Maybe music is is slightly harder to pin down because music has always been a sort of a conglomeration of different influences. But it's um, life looks different when you look at things like that. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I, you know, the hit, basically all of American popular culture is in some sense of uh, the mixing, the borrowing and the appropriation of of blackness. I mean, especially American popular music. There's, you know, many volumes written on that. And I think it's, you know, it's complicated because, you know, we don't want to say, I mean, culture works based on people borrowing and being influenced yeah. by. And so, we, you know, I don't think it's as easy as saying, you know, we should never we should never allow for a non-black person to, you know, play what we see as historically black music or dance a historically black dance. But the thing I kept finding, and especially when I was researching twerk, is that it the problem really comes when you kind of, when somebody's monetizing it and when they are not acknowledging where it's coming from and they're not sort of honoring the history of the actual, you know, the actual cultural product. You know, I talk about Miley Cyrus, who in 2014 goes on the VMAs and she twerks. And it's just, I mean, if you watch it, it's almost impossible to find, actually. I think she probably has scrubbed the Internet. It's so (laughs) embarrassing for her. And especially now you see it and it seems like such a blatant moment of cultural appropriation. But even the way people reacted to it, it was so rare that people acknowledge that twerk is actually a dance that comes, you know, from some of the oldest moments of American you know, like black people coming to the U.S. and New Orleans in the you know 17th and 18th centuries, and has this long and interesting history that, um, you know, clearly Miley Cyrus wasn't interested in that part of what twerk was. But um, there is a lot of things you could have done with it that could have been interesting, but she did not do anything hmm. in that vein. So, final question: In the 21st century, how would you like people to think about the bum? Oh, man, that's a hard question. I think I what I hope is that people can just think about it complexly. I think that in some ways, the whole book is an invitation to think a little bit harder about all all of the things that we maybe overlook or just don't think very hard about. You know, it's easy to just laugh at our butts. And I think we should laugh at butts um, or to be like, that's a sexy butt. And I think it's fine to find butts sexy. But I think we should also interrogate where our ideas about our bodies come from all parts of our bodies, but I think the butt is a very good place to start. And then to kind of like have that be an opening to understanding ourselves and our thoughts about our own bodies and the bodies of others in new and kind of more complex ways. I love this quote from you. It'd be great if our bodies could just be facts instead of symbols, but instead we treat them like metaphors. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't, and I'm not sure we ever could not treat them like metaphors, but I think we have to acknowledge that that's what we're doing. Because I think one thing that can happen is that we think, we think that what we believe about a body is true instead of understanding that like most of our ideas about bodies are metaphors, are symbolic, are symbols, and they come up, they come from history. They don't really come from the actual fact of the body. Heather, you've done such a great job on this book. Thank you so much for telling us about it and uh, can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much and thanks for having me. Heather Radke, author of Butts, A Backstory.